going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Ever have one of those weekends where you just feel like you don't need to do anything, therefore you're not going to do anything? That was my weekend in a nutshell. And of course, the one thing that gets in the way is whenever you sleep on you know, an arm wrong and now you've got that kink in your shoulder, never fails. Just can't have one peaceful, relaxing weekend. Hopefully yours was just a little bit better than that, though. Greetings and salutations, friends. Happy Monday, one and all. Fantastic weekend. Not, didn't have to do much of anything. It was kind of refreshing. And not only that, but you also had not awful weather as well. Although, if you have any tips on how to keep some of the melting snow out of your garage, that would be great. Now, I don't know what it is, but actually, I think I know what it is. Might be just taking the snow shovel and patting the neighbor on the kneecaps over it. Keeps throwing snow on top from the off his back driveway, I guess, onto where my gutter is. And then the gutter freezes up and then it's frozen and there's water in the back. I tell you, there's a couple of things that there. I had a couple of conversations over the weekend where it's like, man, where did our neighborly sense go? The other one is I was amazed taking the walk around over the weekend thinking everybody it's warm out. Everybody will have their, their sidewalk shoveled. no, not even a little bit. Not from that that last snowfall. I think everybody collectively, not everybody, there's a few people that just gave up. They went, no, nah, not doing it again. I've retired the shovel. Not doing it. Refuse. There's a lot of icy sections. So if just be neighborly. That's all I'm asking. Be nice because there are people that are going to be needing those sidewalks. I know you want to wait on the Chinook to help you out. But it's just the nice thing to do. Coming up on today's show, we are going to dive first and foremost into seclusion rooms. The terminology surrounding Education Minister David Egan's decision about banning seclusion rooms come September. It's not that it's being met with hesitation, but it's being met with a little bit of confusion. What is a seclusion room versus, say, a calming room, which is what some school boards across this province are using. Mary Martin from the Calgary Catholic School Division will join us in just a couple of minutes here to talk about that particular issue. And she's inviting the education minister down to see what they have in a couple of different schools for calming rooms. We'll also endeavor to bring you some of the tape from City Hall today as Mayor Nahed Nenshi unveils the YYC Matters website. This is kind of a rehash from 2015 and leadership races from 2013 and 2014. But it's to get people thinking about the issues in our city heading into the next provincial election. And we'll see if we can grab some of that uh, tape. I know Aurelio Perry is at City Hall right now, and he will try to get us that. So he, you can hear straight from the horse's mouth, this time around being Mayor Nahed Nenshi, about what he thinks Calgarians should think will be the priorities heading into this spring's election. Motor Monday with Brian Turner returns. We'll also have a little bit of an excerpt from an earlier conversation I had today with Arnold Michaelis and Pardeep Singh Kalika. They are going to be a couple of special guest speakers at Mount Royal University tomorrow. Completely different backgrounds, 
but a very enlightening conversation that we're going to put up in podcast form because it's a 16-minute interview. It involves the uh, the son of a man who was shot in a Sikh church shooting and a former white supremacist. We'll chat with those two. Uh, we'll play you that audio after 4.30, coming up after 5. A lot of questions around text messages being sent to us from political parties. Drew Westwater from Elections Alberta will join us to tell you what the rules are, what you can get away with, and how you get off those lists. Yes, there is a list. I know Danielle talked about it a little earlier on. Drew Westwater will uh, talk us through that. And we'll also be joined by James Demers from the Calgary Queer Arts Society after 5.30. The coming out monologues, uh, monologues turned 10 this year. We'll talk all about the transformation of those monologues over the course of the last 10 years and more. As mentioned, I'll give you a little bit of my background on how this story and how I'm, I'm still a little perplexed over the decision-making process around seclusion rooms. But it's been a topic of conversation, especially for those who have kids in schools and those who are very passionate about the education system. Can we still have calming rooms? Seems to be the question. Mary Martin from the Calgary Catholic School Board joining us now on the program. Mary, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. When it comes to the idea of seclusion rooms or the, the rooms that can kind of get the kids away from certain situations, how, let's start off with how does the Calgary Catholic Board deal with this? What, is your, what are your guys' rules around those, uh, those kinds of rooms? Well, first and foremost, when we make any decision regarding our children, we always look at it through the lens of what's best for kids. And beyond that, how can we best serve serve their needs? Um, we have uh, an array of, of uh, strategies and uh, spaces for our kids uh, to use on an as-needed basis. We do have two purpose-built schools, St. Anthony's and Our Lady of Lourdes, that were carefully designed with a lot of consultation from a variety of stakeholders to support our learners with really complex needs. And within, uh, within these structures, we've got uh, calming rooms. And they are one of a suite of, of strategies that used to support student learning. We really want our learners to be successful, um, every one of them. We have almost 57,000 students, and uh, each one is unique. And we want to make sure that we can provide the array of supports that they need. And calming rooms are just one of a very broad strategy, uh, set of strategies that we have. When you talk about the, I mean, we're six months away now from the province mm-hmm. legislating these, uh, the the uh, not having seclusion rooms anymore. What kinds of questions does your board have heading into the next six months? Well, we're looking for clarity. We we have been looking at the ministerial order uh, regarding seclusion rooms uh, as as they are defined uh, in in the letter from the minister, and we're looking for clarity with respect to definition and latitude. Uh, to continue to use strategies that are going to help our students succeed. Uh, from our perspective, uh, our calming rooms are used as a, as a last resort, but they are a very helpful strategy, and they're employed with full consultation and knowledge of the families of the children in our care. Uh, 
uh, they support the use of of, uh, of our calming rooms, and uh, they're they're integral to the success of our students. We have uh, students who occasionally have difficulty regulating their behavior in a conventional classroom, mm-hmm. and even a specialized classroom. And the option of being able to remove them fully supervised in a purpose-built safe room for very brief periods of time is a really important part of allowing these children to be successful so that they can regulate their behavior and return to a classroom. Our students are very happy in our purpose-built environments. They're designed with their success and their needs in mind. And nobody wants them to be more successful than we do. So we work really hard. And again, last resort for our calming rooms, but they have been very, very effective. Is that maybe one of the challenges is the definition of a seclusion room versus, say, a calming room? Or I know there's different boards that have uh, different terminology around it. So is that maybe one of the big question marks that's lingering is what are, how are we defining these and what are they actually, what are we talking about when we talk about these seclusion rooms? You've asked a, a really good question, and that is one of the questions that we want to speak to the minister about. In fact, we've invited Minister Aiken to come out to uh, visit our our unique facilities uh, that have our calming rooms in it because we want him to see firsthand what it is we're looking at. I can't speak to what other jurisdictions have mm-hmm. designed to support their learners. What I can tell you is that in larger centres like Calgary and Edmonton, we have a greater number of families who seek out larger centres because they have uh, the, the other supports outside of school, medical, you name it, to support the complex needs of these students. That's not to say that complex learners aren't in every community, but they are disproportionately higher, uh, represented in a higher uh, number in in centres like Calgary and Edmonton. And having purpose-built buildings designed to ensure and enhance success for these learners is really important. We're really proud of these facilities. Uh, They're built with love. They're built with compassion. They're built to support student success and staff safety. I suppose a lot of it has to do with the design as well, right? You look mm-hmm. at, uh, I'll use the, the old example and the one that has been very much ostracized and rightfully so is, you know, a room with white walls and that's it. There's nothing there, nothing to stimulate, nothing uh, versus what it sounds like with the Catholic board is you guys have some rooms that are more meant to actually calm the kid and get them back into a, uh, into a situation that can be a little bit more controllable. Well, not only controllable, but... It's all about creating the circumstances for student success. We want our kids to succeed, and a big part of success for these students is how are they going to manage in the broader community? And a huge part of that is their ability to regulate and self-calm. This is just one strategy that's used when others have not been successful within a class, and our goal is always, always to get them back in their classroom as quickly as possible. So these rooms, and I've, I've had the opportunity to tour them, are uh, beautifully equipped. They're they're soft-sided on the floor, on the wall, soft corners, uh, big windows for supervision, and with the ability to gently dim the lights to help them Mm -hmm. uh, self-regulate their behavior, and then they're back in their classrooms as quickly as possible. The other option, if we're not in a position to offer this, we, we then need to resort to calling their parents to come, to come and pick them up. And that might, for some parents, uh, result in a call several times a day. And that has obvious impact for them. Mm-hmm. You, one of the things that I've, uh, in having these conversations, is that it's one thing to be want, wanting that inclusive education and making sure that every kid is feeling wanted. On the flip side of it is when you have those kids who are uh, prone to, say, a, a violent outbursts or outbursts that are... That are 
getting in the way of the other, say, 20 or 25 or 30 kids who are in the classroom, mm-hmm. is it doing those kids any good as well? And so is there a happy medium to be reached? And are we being closed-minded by the idea of having any kind of room that allows for that separation and continue the, the learning to happen? You know, you've actually touched on something that's really, really important and really integral, at least to Calgary Catholic, and that is treating the unique needs of each learner one at a time. Uh, You do have to balance uh, the needs of the classroom as as a whole and and staff safety, certainly. But central to that is that we have to be meeting the needs of each student one-on-one, and and that involves individual uh, learning strategies. Our teachers... Uh, are brilliant. They and the teachers that work with this particularly vulnerable group of students are passionate and committed individuals who use a variety of strategies, uh, heavily engaged in in um, professional development to create strategies that will allow each student to be successful. Some may use these calming rooms more often than others. Others may never need them at all. But what's really important is that we have available what each student is going to need to succeed. And that'll change over the course of a day or a year. And one of those things, too, is to have the tools available because every year is going to bring on a new set of uh, students Mm -hmm. who have a different Mm -hmm. kind of set. So if you you may not need the room, for example, one year, but the next year you might need it for two or three kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's important uh, from our perspective that we have as complete an array of strategies and tools to use as possible. It's how our kids succeed. When it comes to the meeting with the minister, if he does come down, what are a couple of the key takeaways you'd like for him to understand or outline or make sure that he keeps in mind? Because I assume the conversation is going to need to be had with all school boards and not just one or two. Well, again, and I can't speak for other other school boards, but uh, uh, we're very hopeful that the minister will accept this invitation at as early as convenience. We're so proud of the facilities that we've created uh, with uh, on be- with parents, with stakeholders on behalf of these kids. Um, as an educator himself, and I can't speculate what he may be thinking, but I do know that in conversations that I have had with him, the kids come first. And I think that there's nothing like seeing the the skill and the dedication augmented by a purpose-built facility, how that cannot help but lead to the best outcomes for students and how the judicious and careful and sparing use of calming rooms is a really important part of that. So we're really hopeful that a dialogue with the minister that hopefully would involve a visit to these facilities will result in the flexibility to allow uh, buildings and staff who are specifically uh, educated and oriented to helping these kids, that they will have the latitude to continue to use them because they're critical. Mary, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. Take care. In the meantime, over the last hour or so, Mayor Nahed Nenshi standing before cameras and microphones to unveil the YYC Matters website. Now, this is nothing new by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they did this during the leadership races in 2013, 2014. They also did that uh, before the provincial election in 2015. And it's basically the mayor's, I don't want to call it a wish list, but it's almost like a questionnaire of sorts to get a gauge of some of the city issues and where each of the parties stand on those city issues. The bi- a big example would have been the city, big city charter way back when. Where do you stand on that? 
So again, the mayor standing before reporters just a, about 45 to an hour ago. And we'll play a little bit of the tape from that. And this is uh, his opening remarks to uh, launching YYC Matters. But it's not just about promoting economic growth. It's also about supporting Calgarians through the recovery. That means we're looking to the parties to tell us how they're going to continue funding the low-income transit pass, what they're going to do about affordable housing, what their point of view is on addiction and mental health strategy and on safe consumption sites. We're going to be asking them about how mortgage rules are making it harder for Albertans to get into that home, into that first home, and how we're going to work on that. And is Councillor DeMong up here? There you are. What else are we asking about, Councillor DeMong? About how we can make sure we're not paying for our recycling twice through extended producer responsibility. And as always, we're going to be talking about the infrastructure gap. We need to make sure that we are building and maintaining essential infrastructure in this city. We've got to support economic competitiveness, but we also have to support quality of life. That means we need a fiscal plan for how infrastructure is going to be funded, not just the big projects we're talking about, like the Fieldhouse and the Arts Commons, but how are we going to fix the roofs at those community rinks? How are we going to build the recreation facilities and the parks that people need across this whole city? How are we going to make sure we're patching up the potholes and building the roads and bridges that are required? It's also time for us to have a broader conversation, seeing if Councillor Gondek is here, on school planning and how we ensure that the way that schools are planned are in conjunction with the growth of communities that we're looking at the city data and we're understanding the ways where, it's where our limited school funding can have the highest results. And of course, while the Springbank Dry Dam is a commitment that we are looking for people to check off, we also need each party to tell us what their plan is for further upstream mitigation, particularly on the Bow River. So, we know that this election will be won and lost in the city of Calgary. And I encourage every single Calgarian to get involved. Visit yycmatters.ca, inform yourselves on the key issues that impact our city. Discuss them with your friends and family, debate them, challenge those candidates who come to your door on what is their Calgary plan. Whether it's online or whether it's in person, let's make sure that Calgary issues become the issues in this upcoming election. And most important for all my neighbours and all my fellow Calgarians, educate yourself, inform yourself, and make sure that you think about Calgary when you're marking your ballot. A lot of good things said. I think nobody's really surprised. And given, if you look at just the general uh, feeling around the province, for example, is rural Alberta will likely go UCP. Uh, the Edmonton area will likely go NDP. So I don't think he's wrong in the sense of, this election may very well be won or lost based off of what happens here in Calgary. I'd also argue some of the the smaller urban centers. So Lethbridge, for example, had two NDP MLAs. Will that happen again? Eh, Medicine Hat? Uh, I don't think so. Red Deer, I think, went one and one. Uh, so those, the, those are going to be the key battlegrounds. So he's not wrong on that stretch. He's also not wrong in thinking that, hey, it's got to be more than just the economy. For example, and I'm... I, I'm been pending a blog that should be posted fairly soon if it's not already about how we need to have a more wholesome discussion at some point once the writ is dropped i'm hoping everybody's willing to have that conversation about an actual budgetary talk 
It's one thing to say, hey, we're going to get rid of the carbon tax and we're going to drop uh, corporate taxes, as an example. But are we going to, how are we going to get some of that money back? Because that's, that's income, right? You need to offset that with either some kind of cut or a new source of revenue. Otherwise, you do the math. I'm, an, I'm a numbers guy. So we can have that discussion. We can also have that discussion about, hey, if the NDP is going to get voted back in, what are they going to do to make sure that we're not stuck in the same rut for the next four or five years? The mayor taking a few more questions, and here's one of the answers. As long as the parties have plans, they need not worry about that. Um, and certainly uh, we have done this many times. I feel like there have been a lot of elections since I've been in this job. Uh, and we have stayed away from partisanship, but we're not staying away from saying XYZ party will not fund the Springbank Dry Dam. And I think Calgarians need to know that. Uh, you know, I am an old teacher and I do love to grade. But no, we'll let Calgarians make those decisions, but we will certainly make it very clear to people where there are holes and where there are innovative ideas. You know, so for example, um, in the last election, I said straight out that the party that had the best plan for funding the Green Line at that time was the Wildrose Party. There were other things that I might have disagreed with the Wildrose Party on, but if voters were really interested in that issue, then that was probably the best plan. And we're going to make that clear for people as well. That's the one thing that I have appreciated about the YYC Matters website over the course of the last few years is that it has been nonpartisan. It has been, and she's been open about that, about, you know, hey, if you're thinking that the green line is very important to you, the Wild Rose at the time had the best plan for it. So it's something, again, I firmly believe that that is something that you can, as a Calgarian, and as someone who might be live, you know, living outside city limits, or even those living around the province, I would argue the best course of action is looking at each individual candidate and going, are you going to be the best representative for me? As I've said before, I'm not going to be one to say this is the best part. I'm not endorsing anybody. It's not my job to tell you how to vote. It's up to you to decide what's important in your life at that particular moment when you mark your X. But I will say this is in the lead up to the election, make sure that you are getting the best candidate for you and your riding. I've always argued I'd much rather have an effective MLA or MP in opposition versus a lapdog MP or MLA in government. I want someone who's actually going to get something done is another way of putting that. And I think YYC Matters gives you a little bit of ammunition for some questions that you want to ask heading into said provincial election. I'm sorry. I know that's going to offend a few people around the council chamber, but come on now. There's been a lot to be said about the way that this council conducts its business, especially this iteration. I've kind of held back on my thoughts on whether it's dysfunctional, and we've talked about that in the past, but 
it doesn't do that idea any good when the constant headlines are oh, they're bringing in a psychologist or they're having closed door meetings to figure out how they're going to work better together and all these kinds of things. So today is the same kind of thing. They're having that closed door meeting, figuring out how they're going to get together. Uh, the meeting was first supposed to happen actually back in late October, and it actually turned into a, a bit of a, a friction point between a number of different councillors. Uh, Diane Collier-Cart chatted with Gordon Sue on the morning news here on 770 CHQR earlier on in the day, and she actually gave this council not a, a failing grade when it comes to working together. She kind of gave it a 7 out of 10. We'll revisit a couple of those clips in a second, but she actually stood up in council chambers before they went behind closed doors and delivered this message to council. I did a quick interview on QR this morning, uh, which I don't do all that often anymore. Uh, but I, I just wanted to share some of these points as a senior member of council uh, that with these sessions. Um, you know, they were certainly trying to whip up some drama about today. And uh, I said I, I was glad I wasn't in, Anar- in Antarctica for this one uh, and that I did get back from my golfing in Tucson last night. Oh, lucky you. Um, but, uh, you know, in my 20 years experience, for those that are new on council, we have, we, in my experience, we've had more, more highly, highly charged interactions and, and uh, controversy in previous councils uh, that were more, a lot more highly partisan than, really? than ours, absolutely. I also commended the new members of council that we have on our team uh, uh, that uh, have really contributed, I think, to, um, uh, to a very productive conversation. It's not unusual for corporations and teams to go away and do some team building in order to get things done. Calgary, Calgarians expect us to do that. The other things I mentioned in this interview were that, uh, not, not you, I know it's nap day, so you can go ahead. Um, uh, so, uh, but what I did want to say was, you know, many, many years ago, and, and, and Councillor Farrell and, and Councillor Jones and those that were here, we didn't have a lot of policies and practices in place around code of conduct. We didn't have an integrity commissioner. We didn't have an ethics advisor. So in many respects, it really was the wild, wild west. And when I was trying to frame the session today, we had a very important strategic discussion a couple weeks ago. And now we're trying to figure out how as a collective we come together to accomplish those things for Calgarians. So, you know, some of the disparaging rhetoric around a psychology session and all these other things, I I think is a real disservice to administration and to this council. So, uh, and also kudos to this facilitator that we have. I thought she did a great job the last time we were together, and I'm really looking forward to the session and the time she has spent with us in between that meeting and now. Uh, and if we're going to get the best out of it, we don't have a party whip in this system to keep us <laughs> focused. So it's up to each and every one of us to make today work. That's all I have. Now, I don't disagree with Diane Collier-Cart in a couple of different fashions, one being... These guys, I don't want them all voting one way. I actually don't mind them arguing from time to time over certain issues because an argument is actually, hey, at least they're they're having that open conversation. And this whole notion every time that there's some sort of, of back and forth is, oh, there's some animosity. It's not necessarily the case. Again, I go back to the days of Dave Bronconier and Rick McIver going at it over and over and over again. 
Bronconi could have said the sky was blue and McIver would have said it was red or vice versa. Like they, there was just no likey at all. But there's also a point where these meetings go off the rails a bit. And Collier Carr kind of alluded to that during her chat with Gordon Sue this morning, saying that Mayor Nenshi has a more conversational style than some of his predecessors, but that means pretty much everything's up for debate. Uh, the mayor is the first of equals. Uh, he, uh, he will be the first to tell you that. Although I would say I worked 10 years with Mayor Brancagne, and of course, you know, you guys know him well. Yeah. Uh, he <laughs> kept a pretty tight rein on us. Uh, that's not in his style. And it's not necessarily a great thing when counselors are allowed to speak at length on some topics. The head uses a conversational approach. Uh, everyone gets to speak about everything but the kitchen sink, even when the kitchen sink is not on the agenda. <laughs> and here's one other piece that was not in play 10 or 15, 20, 25 years ago. Social media. I think that is... Be- that has become one of the big issues for politicians, period. Because you can talk in your echo chamber and you think that that's the only chamber that it's being spoken to and then somebody takes you out of context. You can't speak at great length on social media. So, again, I don't think it's a bad thing that these counselors are sitting behind closed doors and trying to figure things out. But I don't want it to get to the point where they think, that they need to agree on everything just for optics sake. Have some thorough discussion and don't be uh, turned off by that thorough discussion. I had a a good laugh reading this. You know who is uniting Albertans? It's not Rachel. It's not Jason or any other political leader. It's Mary and Ryan and how unified we are in hating intrusive text messages on our phones. I had a good laugh about that one. That's all in response to the latest swath of text messages that have been sweeping across Alberta. This one, hi, it's Mary from the United Conservative Party. Who are you voting for in the upcoming provincial election? Reply, Lib, NDP, UCP, or other Clearly, a few people are a little incensed and can't believe that they're on a list. Or is it a list? As we talked about when the NDP had one of these, they say they claimed it was just random phone numbers that were being text, uh, texted. Drew Westwater is Deputy Chief Electoral Officer at Elections Alberta, and I wanted to get his take on some of these things. Drew, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure to be here, Joe. There are a lot of questions surrounding text messages and who uh, who's getting them and why they're getting them and that kind of thing. And so I want to set the record straight, and I thought I'd go right to the source, and that being you. What are the rules and regulations surrounding text messages and text message campaigns when it comes to elections? Uh, For provincial election campaigns in Alberta, uh, political parties and candidates are allowed to advertise and send their messages, or political parties are anyway, allowed to send out their messages uh, to the constituents across Alberta to gain support for their party or their candidates or to sign up for memberships or for uh, volunteering to put signs on their lawns, that sort of thing. Uh, They are allowed to communicate with electors uh, by text messaging or phone message or in person or by brochure. Um, there are requirements on how they do that, however. In during the, Generally, they start during the uh, campaign period. Uh, they must have the telephone number of the sponsor, must not be blocked uh, from the call or from the text message that's sent to the elector so that they know where the call is coming from. 
and the name of the sponsor or their affiliation must be stated at the beginning of the advertisement. So in other words, they'd say, it's Drew Westwater from Elections Alberta calling, and uh, here's my message sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they identify who they are, and uh, once they've gotten the content of the message in the text uh, process, um, that's the end of it, and um, uh, the electors uh, can either respond or not respond uh, accordingly. How did the, each of the parties get a hold of the the text number or the uh, the phone numbers? Um, I can't speak for all the political parties. I do know that the political parties get the electors' uh, names on the elector list from us prior to each election, which has the name, address, and telephone number of each elector who's provided it to us during the enumeration or previous elections. So they can use that number to contact the elector. Quite often, they also solicit over and above that from private vendors who sell phone, telephone numbers to them. So is there a way for people to opt out of these? Because that's been one of the big concerns that have been floated our way is, hey, I thought I was on the do not call list or, you know, there were federal lists that said, hey, these are the, we can get ourselves off these lists. So is there a way for people to get off those lists? Yeah, the the political parties are exempt from the federal do not call list and the CRTC guidelines. Uh, So even though they're on the do not call list for all uh, commercial conveyors of products and services, uh, they are not exempt uh, from the political calls that come into them. However, the uh, political party is required under CRTC guidelines, and the CRTC rules how you get off the do not call list or how you get off the call list. Uh, You'd write to the uh, party or contact the party with the contact information they provided to you in the text or the phone call, and you tell them, I want to be removed from your call list. And then by uh, CRTC guidelines, they have 14 days to remove you from their call list. And after that, they're not allowed to call you anymore. So then after, let's say, for example, a party goes and gets that response and they don't do it or they don't abide by it or they end up back on that list, they could then file a complaint through the... Right. I've got you. There's been a lot of questions, like I said, that have been asked on that front. And so is there anything else that people should be aware about when it comes to these text message campaigns in terms of uh, how they should respond if they do get them and and that kind of thing? Um, That's up to the individual. If they're annoyed by them and they're upset by them and they want to be removed, then contact them immediately to get removed from their caller list. And then uh, 14 days later, they should not be getting any more of those texts because quite often they come in in flurries from all sorts of... Unfortunately, they come from all the parties. Mm -hmm. And you you get removed from one party's list, you'd have to contact each individual who's sending you the text message to get removed from their call list. So it does take some time, unfortunately, for that. It is part of the democratic process, though, where they're trying to communicate with their electors to garner support for their candidates for the election. Gives a little bit of clarity for a lot of people there, Drew. Thank you so much for the time this afternoon. You're very welcome, Joe. Now I just need to make sure that I phone all of the parties preemptively and say, do not text me. I do not want your... I find it fascinating, and I go back to when I spouted off about this with the NDP, was I find it fascinating that any party would actually think that that's a good way of marketing themselves. You're just upsetting the electorate more than anything, aren't you? Scalger today on 770 CHQR. Hard to believe it's been a decade since the coming out monologues debuted here in Calgary at the University of Calgary and joining us uh, to talk a little bit more about where we've come from and where we're going on that front. Uh, James Demers is the executive director of the Calgary Queer Arts Society. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. When you look back 10 years ago versus how we're looking now, what's changed here in Calgary and in terms of the vision for the coming out monologues? 
The vision has definitely, I don't know if the vision has grown so much as the audience reaction, the way that the monologues have an impact on audiences and the people to participate in them has changed and grown over time. Um, but coming out stories are coming out stories. And LGBT people, we spend our whole lives entering into some form of coming out story as we move through the world. And so they're a really powerful way for us to connect. If you were to go back 10 years, let's say you got the Back to the Future, you got the DeLorean and all that, would you, would 10 years ago you be able to believe how far it's come in the last 10 years? No, it was a much smaller program then. And, and when the monologues originally started, we were using already written monologues. Uh, we made a pretty pretty intense decision to have people write their own stories, and that changed the course of it completely. Uh, and so the way the monologues look now is different, but in a really productive way, in a really personal way. For those who haven't taken part in those four days there, this year it's March 20th to 23rd, give us a little bit of a snapshot. So the Coming Out Monologues is happening in the New Central Library. So if you haven't had a chance to check out this space, this is a great excuse mm-hmm. to do that. Um, there's a there's a concession, and the night consists of we have special guest MCs coming in, actually from all across Canada this year. We have special musical guests, and then you get to see a series of monologues. The monologues usually range from two to five a night, plus some performances around that. And we're featuring this year for the first time LGBT immigration stories wow. um, of people who have immigrated to Canada because their country of origin was not necessarily friendly to who they were. And so we thought it was really important to incorporate those stories into our stories. What's been the most uh, challenging or maybe even the most, uh, the, the best thing that has come out of the last 10 years with coming out monologues? Oh, that's a tall order. Um, I, we, well, we're actually having an alumni event that's going to be opening the first night. And oh. so what's really interesting is to see where people's monologues were seven or eight or four years ago and then see them returning. We often have people that do more than one monologue over the course of their life. So you get to see their stories develop, and that's really exciting. So I would say that the community that gets built around an event like this is the most important part. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as the challenging side of it, what, what's been most challenging over the last 10 years? I think telling a personal story to strangers is terrifying for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think working through a program like this where you're, you're putting something so personal on the table as a way of addressing it and what it meant for you yourself, I think that's a really important experience for people. And it's a good way for us to find each other uh, and to find sort of personal resilience, which is always important. What does it mean to you to have been a part of this whole transition over the last decade? It's exciting. Uh, LGBT people have experienced a lot of really interesting change in the last decade. We're having conversations about um, youth identity and family structure and our part in the political system. And I think that it's all really productive. It's exciting to be part of the conversation in ways that we were always sort of in the background before. And it's good to see LGBT stories on things like Netflix and at things like our festival, Mm -hmm. uh, giving people the opportunity to tell their own story. Talk a little bit about what you hope gets accomplished 10 years from now. If you can go back into that DeLorean and visit, you know, 2029, where, where do you hope the coming out monologues, uh, monologues head to? I mean, I could go for your futuristic and say I think we'd have more technology, but to be honest, I think, I think just the act of telling stories is really powerful. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see... Uh, more generations of LGBT people. I think we're going to see younger people. And we're going to also see people who are coming out now in their 40s and 50s, who 10 years from now will have a very different life in a really productive way. It'll be interesting to see what they think about the distance that they've traveled, but I'm optimistic. Again, March 20th to 23rd, the 10th anniversary edition of the Coming Out Monologues, YYC edition. The new Central Library is where you'll be able to take it all in. James Demers, the executive director of the Calgary Queer Arts Society. James, thanks so much for the update today. Yes, thank you very much. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. 
Just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon.